Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I don't know if you've um, ever seen this on the on the news before. Uh, they, they'll have like occasionally like little documentaries about people like this, um, which are these uh, piano prod- prodigies. You know, these like young piano geniuses, basically, and they they can play like incredibly complex. Uh, compositions. By the way, just a, a factoid: the the person who's the the most difficult to play that that I've heard is is Rachmaninoff. He's he just apparently the hand movements that are required are just bananas, or just like you know. So there are people who 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 at a very early age somehow have the have the ability to 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 play these pieces. I remember I, I actually went to school with uh, Leonard Bernstein's daughter, who is one of the uh, great American composers, pianists, you know, of the last century. And I remember she looked at my hands one time and said, you would have been great at the piano if you had any talent. <laughs> so I <laughs> always remember that. <laughs> anyway, so, so, so they talk about... Um, they talk about the, the next stage usually for these like six-year-olds who are like you know off the charts in terms of their ability to play. They they put them with a a a master piano teacher. So somehow in my mind these are always Russian women, but I, I don't I don't know if that's true or not. But in my mind they are anyway, um, and. And so here's my question. Here's my question. What, what, if they know how to play all of the notes, why, why do they need to, to be given this, this great teacher? And then that's seemingly where the real work starts. So, so what's going on? And, and we're going we're gonna to try to give an answer to that from a, from a Torah context because I'm, I'm using that as an example for us to ideally all make uh, strides and progress in terms of our heavenly service. So, so before I give an answer to that, I, I just want to sort of like tie it more overtly into a, a Torah context, which is we have a very interesting halacha and that's if you don't know what Parsha of the week it is. In other words, you know, every week you're supposed to read a different part of the Torah. Um, if you don't know which, which portion you're up to, let's say you're lost in the desert. That would be the, like, like the classic example. So the answer is, there's actually an answer to this. The rabbis say, the halacha is, that you read Parsha's B'Shalach. So, so that's, that's interesting on a number of uh, on a number of levels, so I, that that was the parsha that we read this week, and for those of you who aren't familiar with it by name, Parsha Spishalach is like a massive parsha, not not in terms of length, but in terms of content. You have the splitting of the Red Sea, right? You have the the manna falling from heaven, the bread from heaven, um, Amalek attacking. Uh, you have all sorts of like, and and even more important than that. We, we're finally leaving Egypt. 
right? After hundreds of years of, of servitude, of slavery, we're leaving Egypt. So it's a, it's a landmark Parsha. It's, it's, it's very understandable why that would be the Parsha to read. But there's a lot of questions we can ask at the same time. First of all, if you were to ask me what Parsha should we read, I would have given you a different answer. I would have told you Parsha's Yisro, which, by the way, is the Parsha after Parsha's Beshalach, but that's not consequential for in this context. Parsha's Yisro, again, if you're not familiar with it by name, has another climactic event, and I would say arguably an even more climactic event, which is why I would have given that as an answer, which is the giving of the Torah itself. In other words, what could be more central to absolutely everything than the bottom line of everything, the fact that God revealed his will for us in the world? That's, that's the giving of the Torah itself. Why not make that the headquarters? Because basically what they're, what they're saying, I don't think I'm reading too much into this, which is that it, there's, they're picking one Parsha of all the Parshas that if you're going to read, in a way it seems that the rabbis are saying which Parsha embodies the essence of all the Parshas. That's how I'm hearing the conversation. And they're telling you it's Parshas B'Shalach. So that's, that's very interesting. Um, so, so I'm wrong. I'm wrong. Because, because Parshas B'Shalach is the Halacha. Okay, now... Now, we're still talking about the piano player, believe it or not. So I want to introduce an important distinction in terms of our creativity and, and interacting with the, with, with, with the Torah itself. And I want to establish two main categories, okay? One is halacha. So remember, what is halacha? So sort of like the, the very sort of... Um, unfriendly translation of halacha would be Jewish law. <laughs> I say unfriendly because it has sort of like a hammer, like a gavel on the podium kind of feel to it, you know? It just You can feel the banging when, when you hear that word. Um, there's a more gentle and I think even more um, actually genuine um, translation for halacha. Halacha comes from the word holeich, which means to walk. And so halacha actually can be translated as the way. And the way is a much more, it has, to me, it has much more of an Eastern vibe to it. <coughs> By the way, Judaism Torah itself is, has a real super Eastern vibe to it as well, which is something that's lost to a lot of um, uh, Westerners and, and people who aren't familiar with the spirituality of, of Torah. Um, and and it's, it's sort of like a, a, a path through the wilderness, basically. That's, that's what it is. In, in, a, in, a, in a reality where there's seemingly at any moment, imagine yourself up a single point where you can go in any direction at any time in your life, including trillions of bad directions, <laughs> right? All of a sudden, God reveals to you that there is a path through the wilderness. That is halacha. That's what that is. But halacha has a definitive quality to it. Okay, it's not necessarily always overt, and we're going to discuss the evolving nature of halacha and the dance of halacha we'll get to, God willing. But, but, but first you have to understand that it's a, it's a, it's a way and it's a path, but, but by the fact that you have 
thousands of choices and we're, we're being presented with the fact that God is telling us that this is, this is the ideal path, there is a certain definitiveness to it, right? So that's one category. One category is halacha, and that has a definitive quality to it. Then you have another path in terms of interacting with the Torah, and that's trying to understand the verses of the Torah, just what they're saying on a more philosophical level. Okay? Now, we've got a great rule from one of our greatest tzaddikim ever, the Or HaChayim, um, who says that any interpretation that you give of the Torah that doesn't contradict halacha is perfectly fine. So this is like from one of our greatest tzaddikim ever, one of our holiest people ever, is giving you essentially carte blanche, free reign to understand the Torah in the way that makes sense to you and whatever you want to add to the Torah, as long as it doesn't contradict halacha. Right? And that would include Jewish principles. Like, like so for instance, if you say... Um, Wow, I see this verse has five words in it. Therefore, there are five gods. No, that would not be a proper application of this permission, right? Because you are violating the ultimate tenet of Judaism, which is that there's only one God. Okay, so you can't, you can't just say anything. You can't just say anything, okay? So what I think is... Intriguing here. So, in other words, you've got these two categories. You've got the definitive category, where basically it's top-down. This is the halacha. These are our marching orders through the wilderness. That's, that's what it is. That's the halacha category. Then you've got another category, where it's more like more inclusive, where you can bring your neshama, yourself, to the text, and understand it and uncover depths and treasures within the words and the letters itself. And that's a fantastic thing. That actually is considered something that's bringing more light into the world and the world closer to Mashiach and everything else, right? As long as you're doing it in the proper way. But you actually have a lot more latitude than, than you might realize, right? So that's, that's, that's another category. So, so, so I'd like to compare it to just just so we can get a further grasp on it, hopefully. Um, I once sort of like, kind of like, was thinking about the, the difference between what, what I call, this is just kind of my own system here, what I call the, the Harvard answer or the MIT answer, right? So let's contrast Harvard and MIT for a moment. Harvard, you ask a question, you could give a pretty good answer. That's like the Harvard answer. But, you know, there are a lot of different answers you could give, but you give a pretty good persuasive answer, right? The MIT answer is, the answer to the problem is 0.7359. You either got that or you didn't. <laughs> I don't care how many beautiful words <laughs> you said a different answer. You know, people could stand up and applaud, but if it's not that sequence of numbers, you are wrong. You are actually wrong. There's no other way to say it. That's the MIT level, okay? So, so what we're saying is, halacha is the MIT level, and the other side is the Harvard level, meaning your, your ability to interact with the phrases. So I think that that's an important, those are important guidelines 
for us to understand in terms of the, method, the methodology of interacting with the Torah. I think that's an important thing. Now, in terms of Parshas Bishalach, I think that it's very interesting that there is a halacha that, we're, that we, if you don't know what Parsha it is, that you're reading Parshas Bishalach. Now, the reason why I say that that's actually kind of interesting is, let me just sort of like give you some, some alternative thoughts, what it could have been, right? Well, let me present you with a problem. What if you know that it was Parshas Bishalach a few weeks ago, but you just don't know the order of the Parshas, right? So you just don't know the sequence, so you don't know which one it is, but you know it can't be Parshas Bishalach, because we just had Parshas Bishalach a few weeks ago, but if you don't know, and you're lost in the desert, that's the halacha, it's Parshas Bishalach. <laughs> so it's actually somewhat, in certain circumstances, counterintuitive that this would be the case. Or let's say you know that, you know what, we're, we're already in Elul, whatever it is, we're getting close... We know we had Parsha's Bashallah quite a while ago, but I'm lost in the desert. I don't know what it is. I don't know what the Parsha is. Parsha's Bashallah. You could have said, you could have said something that the Rambam brings as halacha now. This is as halacha. Remember our categories. Which is, you know, when you daven Shmona Esrei, you're supposed to face toward the Beis Hamigdash. Right, the the holy of holies in the in the um, you know of the of of the of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, all of us growing up on this side of the globe, we we talk about facing east. Right, facing east is is what it is. But if you're in Africa or if you're in China, you wouldn't face east. Okay, so facing east is just something we've grown up with. But it's that's not the halacha. It's not facing east. It's you're supposed to pray toward the, the, the Holy of Holies. Happens to be that that is synonymous where we are right now with facing east. But facing east is not the halacha. Okay. So the Rambam brings up a problem, and this is not so much a problem today, thank God, because, um, because on most cell phones you have a compass. And if you're like in an airport or in an office or you're in some bizarre room or whatever it is and you don't know which way is east, all you have to do is consult your phone and you'll know which way is east or, you know, for us east, um, very quickly. So it's not as much of an issue as, as it has been in the past. But anyway, it still is sometimes. So the Rambam actually brings this as halacha. This is halacha now, you ready? Which is if you don't know... Which way is east? What is your heart telling you? <laughs> right? You, you, you like face your heart, and your heart is going to point you in a direction intuitively. And for you, under those limited circumstances, right, where you don't really have the right answer, that will be the, the path toward the right answer. So... So that's interesting, because normally speaking, we don't go like that. Like, like for instance, if you say, you know what, I, for a variety of circumstances, I don't know if this food is kosher or if it's trained, right? Or if it's like, this might be pork, I'm not sure. The answer is, what does your heart tell you? Mm-hmm. No, if you, don't, if you think it might be pork, don't eat it. <laughs> so that question of what does your heart tell you, 
So it could be that your heart is telling you that this is this week's Parsha. They, they could have said that. They said it, the Rambam brings it in terms of davening. Why not bring it in terms of the Parsha of the week? But there's a definitiveness there. The rabbis came down and they said, no, we want it to be Parsha's Vashalach. In other words, if you don't know what lessons to learn this week from the Torah or about God and the Jewish people, learn these lessons. That's what we want you to do. Review that one again. Go back to that one. Yeah, it's true. You may have read it a few weeks ago. Go back to it. Interesting. Interesting. So we still need an answer why Parshas Bishalach, or especially over what my previous choice was, Yisro, where we get the Torah, that seems like a, a, a great one to read, but they disagree. And since we're talking about Halacha, which means the MIT level, which means that I'm wrong and they're right. So again, we have to really dig into why is that? Why, why that? Okay. But they're actually, that's actually, we'll bring an answer to that, but that's actually not the main thing I want to discuss. Now I want to get back to this idea of the piano player, because that's, that, that's really what I want to discuss. So what, here you have a piano prodigy you know, some young genius who can play Rachmaninov and just is amazing, right? Just can do it. What is the teacher bringing to that student that the student doesn't already know? And the answer is, it's, it's not a complicated answer. It's, it's a pretty simple answer. The teacher is going to teach this young person who has the technical prowess, they're going to show the student how to invest the composition with feeling. And that's very, very important. Because if you're playing certain keys loud, where you have to play them soft, that can make a very big difference. Right? If you're playing a certain section too quickly and you have to slow it down a little bit, all these things, how you do it, is very, very important. So now all of a sudden we've got a new set of categories. We have the rules themselves and how you do the rules. And this can make all the difference in the world, especially when we're talking about heavenly service. And these are really the stages in terms of um, growing in what we would call tzitkis, growing in holiness. Like this is sort of like the, the playing field for, for rising in levels. At a certain point, it's not whether you're doing it or not, because we're making an assumption that if we're getting toward a more advanced sort of relationship, we're making the assumption that you're doing the things. Now the question is, how are you doing the things? In what way are you doing the things? So I'll give you a couple of examples. Someone told me this many years ago, and I, I forgot who, but I, I, I always liked it because I thought they really nailed the point very nicely, which is, imagine your parent says to you, um, please bring me uh, some food. And you 
you bring them the food, and so you're doing you're doing what the parent what your parent asked you. You're doing the mitzvah of honoring your, your, your parents, right? And and then you get to them and then you just sort of like plop the food in front of them. So have you done it? You did it. But how did you do it? Right? How did you do it? Give you another example, which is, um, again, I don't remember who I heard this from, but I, I love it, which is someone went to, uh, to do the mitzvah of Bikr Cholim, which is visiting the sick. So they were in a hospital, and, and um, I don't know what words they used, but so I'll, you know, I'll just make it a little extreme just to make a point. You know, the person shows up to this pers- sick person in bed, I don't even know if they knew them or not, or whatever it is, it, it almost doesn't matter. And they basically announce, I'm here to do the mitzvah of visiting the sick. Right? And the person in bed says back to the person, I am not your lulav to shake. Right? And sukkahs, we, we have a mitzvah to shake the lulav. In other words, I'm not an, an object that exists for you to do something with. So, so here you see in the example of the, the, the parent and the child and the example of visiting the sick that, that I'm now going to use Reb Shlomo's words. And he used to say this all of the time, all of the time. He would say, it's possible to do everything right and everything wrong at the same time. You can do everything right and you can be doing everything wrong. You see, because when we're getting to the real essence of something, it's just not what you're doing. It's not just the piano prodigy hitting the right keys. It's how are they doing it? With what feeling are they doing it? In what way are they doing it? Now I want to go deeper, okay? I want to talk about... I want to talk about a phenomenon. We're, we're still on the same subject, but we're, we're going to go in terms of um, Torah observance right now, and especially in terms of understanding what for many, many people, and I've heard this from many people over the years, um, how they grapple with the fact that there are a variety of opinions on things. Okay? So, so anyone who's um, learned halacha, like if you've learned it in a formal way, Let's say you have the Shulchan Aruch in front of you. So you have the, the Machaber, you have the Shach, you have the, the Taz, right? You have the Magin Avraham, right? You've got, you've got so many, you know, Rabbi Kiva Eger, you've got so many different Meforshim, so many different opinions. And then, and all holy, like these are like the, the great geniuses and holy people of, of the age, of, of, of all time. And then, the Ramah is going to come, or the um, uh, Mechaber is going to come, and he's going to tell you what the Halacha is. Okay? So, so I've heard many people say, and again, let's keep our two categories in mind now. We have the category of Halacha, right? That's the MIT level where there's a right answer, so to speak. And then you've got the darshaning level where you yourself are invited and encouraged to interact with the verses to come up 
with a new interpretation or something that makes sense to you, as long again as it as it is you know consistent with Jewish thought and Jewish law, right? So, so I've heard many people say, "Oh, there's so many different opinions. There's so many different opinions. What, whatever, whatever." Okay, so. And, and now I want to sort of like, again, I just want to keep this very personal. I've seen this, and this is a phenomena, and if you have insight into this, it will be helpful, especially for people who are trying to take on uh, Torah observance. But, but this, this sort of stage in the Balchuva's um, consciousness sort of remains for many, many, many years, and if you never hear it discussed, it may, it, it may always stay with you forever, which is the difficulty of prioritizing certain things. You see, and it's, it's actually, if I can say such a thing, a beautiful problem. Because the, but, but it needs a solution. It needs a solution. But I want to talk about the beauty of the problem itself. And I was just discussing this, um, and we were talking about the problem. It was, a, it was the problem of opening up a little Starbucks thing of coffee, instant coffee, on Shabbos. And the person was trying to avoid cutting the letters, which you, you should do. By the way, I think there's an opinion that that's maybe only by the Hebrew letters. And just to explain that, because it's kind of, it sounds like uh, maybe like minutia, but it's actually a very cool idea that, that that halacha is addressing, which is that if you've got a sequence of Hebrew letters and you're ripping, you can be making new words. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Within the existing words. So there's this I- idea, I don't know if this is the, the pushit shot, the simple explanation of it, but it's, it's interesting that there is this form of creation taking place while you're ripping the, the letters and the words. Anyway, some people say that's by Hebrew, but, but, but I think many people hold that you should try to avoid doing it if it's in English as well. And so the person who's, um, who I was discussing this with took some scissors and wanted to cut it so that the, it would be more precise. But the problem with that is that I don't know if scissors necessarily are the proper tool to use on Shabbos in order to accomplish that. So it's it, it, it created this, this like great dissonance, and then it's sort of like, well, well, what's the answer, and what are the opinions, and there's so many opinions, and it started, it, 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 there was like a little mini meltdown that took place. Okay? Now, what did I mean by this being a beautiful problem? What I mean by this is that if your heart is open, and you're searching for truth, and you realize there actually is a truth to existence. There actually is a truth that informs all of reality. If, if you arrive at that place, and you arrive at this place where we say Torah to emet, that the Torah is true, then you don't, you, you don't want to do anything that's not consistent with that truth. You don't want to depart from that truth in any way, shape, or form. Even if it's discussions about how do I rip open a Starbucks packet of coffee on Shabbos? You, you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. 
That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That's what we would call really Yira Shemayim. Right? That's a beautiful thing. Okay. Having said that, that's the beauty of the problem. But it, but it needs a solution at the same time. The solution is, or part of the solution, I'm talking about now not on a halachic level, but on a psychological level, and in terms of developing a coping mechanism to be able to make your spirituality and your observance sustainable, is one has to, on some level, prioritize what the things are. And someone has to say to themselves, which is going to sound abundantly obvious once I say it, but since I told you the beauty of the problem itself, you'll ideally have some sort of compassion for what I'm about to say next. A person has to have some level of common sense and understand that opening up a coffee packet in an incorrect way only because they didn't know the answer and were trying to do the right thing, but perhaps they did the wrong thing, is different from murder. <laughs> You're not murdering someone. That is far worse. They say the one of the orders, you know, one of the pillars of the Shulchan Aruch, the last pillar of Shulchan Aruch is common sense. Someone, you need to have some sort of common sense so that you're not endlessly befuddled. Now, once you are able to make some sort of prioritization, then you have to return back to this level of year. Meaning to say, for your own emotional health, you have to be able to understand there is a difference between this and something far worse than that like robbing someone or punching some homeless person in the face for no reason, I, whatever it is, like some act of malevolence and, and something like this. You have to understand that there's a difference between those things. Now, having prioritized and used, using your common sense, now you have to go back to say, it's all holy and I just want to do it however the Torah says. Okay. But, but I want to go back to what I think is a more, like, you know, like, a, a, like a, a computer virus in the system. Because we have to shield ourselves from computer viruses, which I mean little small things that can get into our brains and sort of like upend the whole system. So the computer virus that I'm isolating here is where a person goes, there's so many different there's so many different opinions. Now, by the way, let's keep our charts straight, okay? In the realm of explaining the text, there are so many different opinions, and that's one of the beauties and the blessings of the infinity of the Torah. And you're invited to be one of those infinite opinions. Do you hear? On the other hand, there are a variety of opinions, like, like we said in the Shulchan Aruch, you've got the Taz and the Shach, right? The Magin Avraham, you've got these different opinions, but the Ramah or the Mechaber or the Mishnah Brura are going to come along and they're going to tell you which opinion we go by. 
So in other words, yes, there's a presence of different opinions, but they're going to settle into one way that we do it. And this is important. We're going to go into this more. This is important. In other words, the person will say, the person who's afflicted in the moment will say, well, there's so many different opinions. Now, here's the rest of that thought which goes unspoken, usually. Right? Here's the computer virus that I'm talking about. They'll say, well, there's so many different opinions. Meaning to say, therefore, they're all right, or none of them are right, or therefore, whatever my opinion is, is the final word. (laughs) Now, when a person gets to that place of, therefore, whatever my opinion is, is the final word, Let's go back to the piano player again. That's when you're supposed to be touching the key softly and you clench your fist and you bang on the keyboard. (laughs) That makes a very loud, dissonant sound. And we've been talking about that because this this is the whole Garden of Eden story which is playing itself out in our lives all of the time where God creates situations for us and asks us, who's God? Is it you or is it me? All right. Now we're we're going to go toward an answer. And I want to get back to this idea I alluded to in the beginning of the dance. Okay? You know, imagine just so you have the visual that I have Imagine you, 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 you are with someone else and you're on the ballroom floor and their arm is around your back, right? They've reached your face to face. Their hand is on your back and they're leading you in this direction and that direction and this direction and that direction. And it's a waltz. It's a beautiful waltz taking place and you're being guided here you're being guided there. When the Ramah comes, when the Mishnah Brewer comes, right? When Rev. Ovadia Yosef comes and tells you from the different opinions, all from holy people, but from the different opinions, which opinion we're following, which opinion is what we call Halacha Lamaisa, or in our conversation right now, the next dance step, right? What's happening is a hand is being put behind your back and you're being led to the next dance step. And that requires a certain giving over of yourself to the one leading the dance. Now, the one leading the dance, that's Hashem. See, we, we have something we have something called Siata de Shamaya. Siata de Shamaya is a very important phrase. It means help from heaven. And it's it's interesting because, you know, I think there there's a certain mystical um, component to, to Judaism, even when it comes to Jewish law. By the way, I'll tell you something interesting about Jewish law. 
a prophet is not allowed to tell you what the halacha is during his prophecy. Do you know that? A, a, a prophet can be a very great Torah scholar, but during the moment of his prophecy, where he's transcended his own humanity, and at that point is just a mouthpiece for God, he's left the realms of this world, and once you leave the realms of this world, you can't paskin halacha. You can't say what the law is. The law must be done by a denizen of this dimension that we're in right now. So halacha is very much this world, this dimension, right? And yet, there is a mystical component to it. Because basically, if something holds sway among the generations in the Jewish people, we say that God guided that thing into existence. Right now, now you've got something called. I just want to be very, very complete in this. There's something called a, certain minhagim, certain customs. We say, well, okay, that's not the law, but the Jewish people somehow took this on, and since we're the children of prophets and the children of prophets, therefore, if we've sort of like arrived at this practice, there is something to it. And it has to be respected and taken very seriously. Having said that, there's also something called a minhag shtus, which means a foolish custom. So sometimes foolish customs will creep into the system. It's like full disclosure. You have to, we, have to, we have to acknowledge that that takes place. However, in the halachic realm, we say that if something, if, that, that there are certain poskim, Certain great rabbis, like the Ramah, like the Mechaber, certain great rabbis said history and God rally behind them, and that becomes the flow of all the opinions are then filtered through that person, and that becomes the next dance step. Now, the greatness of this, the greatness of this is you have a moment right now where you can go, hey, there are a lot of opinions. I'm, you know what? I'm just, picking, I'm just picking one. Or you have a moment where you can be humble and give yourself up to the guidance of the next dance step, which is the hand of God leading the discussion to the next step in a particular direction. And that's, that's the dance. That's the, that's the ability to, your parent says to you, bring me a plate of food. That's not just the bringing of the food, it's the placing down of the food in a beautiful way. That's the visiting the sick person and not just announcing that you're here to do the mitzvah, but just poking your head in and saying, Hey, I just wanted to check in. Do you need any water? Is everything okay? Is it, it's you, you, you want another blanket, or or you're good? Everything's everything okay? That's where the chen. See, chen is a very very big word in Torah, and it's one of those words that's sort of like notoriously untranslatable. 
it is translated as grace, but I don't really, grace is, gets complicated because people put different, uh, different definitions on that word. It's better to just stick with the Hebrew. Chen means a certain charm, a certain beauty. Like, I remember I needed a job once, and uh, Reb Shlomo said to me, he thought for a moment, he said, you really need chen. Like, like, he said, because why should an employer pick you over another person? But if a person has chen, that means they have this certain, this certain charm to them. Then people gravitate in that direction towards someone who has chen. So one of the, like, how do you get chen, right? It's hard to get chen. But one of the ways to get chen is, is hitting the notes, but not just the notes that you're supposed to hit, but hitting them in a beautiful way, right? Because otherwise, why, why does that six-year-old prodigy have to go to a music teacher? Why is it considered? Let's take an, an even more extreme example. The rabbis teach that assisting a Torah scholar is even bigger than, than studying Torah. Now, studying Torah is, is it says, Talmud Torah keneged kulam. Talmud Torah is equal to everything. So normally speaking, if you only pick one thing, pick Torah study. But now you're telling me that assisting a Torah scholar is even higher than studying Torah? How could it be? And the answer is, as I understand it, the answer is, is that when you're assisting a Torah scholar, this is someone who doesn't just know how to play the notes, he knows how to play the notes. <laughs> and now what you're seeing is Torah in action, and you're watching, you're apprenticing yourself to watching Torah in action in a beautiful way where now you can learn, you are learning Torah. You say, well, I'm just holding a suitcase. I'm just holding a door for him. I'm just, I'm just calling a cab for him. No, no, no. Now you're actually watching and participating in Torah in action from someone who knows how to apply it. This is the greatest Talmud Torah. It's not just that it's better than Talmud Torah because no, it's a different category. It's the same category. But you're seeing it realized at that moment. But I want to go back to one more point. And that's the point where, again, remember this computer virus type of thing. You see, when we say there's so many, there's a, so many different opinions, what does that verse mean in the Torah? Ah, oh, there's so many different opinions. Yes, thank God, because the Torah is infinite. Of course there's so many different opinions. That shows you the, the, the magnificence of the Torah, that there's so many different ways to understand it. But when it comes to the halacha, then we have this definitive path. And yes, there are other opinions. But then someone comes, generationally speaking, someone like the Ramah, the Mishnah Brewer, comes and tells you how we're doing it right now. And now this is an opportunity for a person to give themselves over again. And in that giving themselves over again, to the hand of God through the generations, through the Siyat Shamaya, through that act of humility, 
that person, I would suggest, acquires chen. But again, this is a this is a very dynamic process. Very dynamic process. See, I saw it. I saw it with my own eyes from Reb Tzadik Hakohen. He talked about how a person's heart is changing multiple, 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 multiple times a day. The heart is one of the most dynamic constructs that there is. I mean, isn't it just interesting? You see it actually in the anatomy itself. It's just beating, 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 meaning to say changing, 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 changing. Pretty, pretty interesting. And there are moments when it's open, there are moments when it's not open, there's moments where it's joyful, there's moments where it's plummeting, and how it's absorbing information. This is, this is really the, uh, the, wonder of, the wonder of people. You know, I, I was studying with a big uh, Talmud Chacham, and he, he was in touch with someone who was doing advanced medical research into cancer. And the more this person understood about cancer, the more he said, how is it that everyone doesn't have? How is a you know, it's like, in other words, when you understand the, the mercurial changing nature of people in general, instead of asking, why don't we get along, how is it possible that any of us get along? It's, it's, a, it's a wonder that society, as dysfunctional as it is, it's a wonder that we get along as well as we do. Okay, so now I want to just finish up and uh, go back to my original question, or one of them anyway, which is, why Parshas B'Shalach? Why Parshas B'Shalach? Because, in other words, when you don't know what what the portion of the week is, why are they saying that that's the halacha? that That it's... Not just look into your heart and see how you feel, like in terms of which way is the Holy of Holies and davening, but no, no, no. This is, this is the Parsha that you're supposed to do. And again, I mean, you could come up with your own alternative, but let's just use mine for now. Why not Parshas Yisra? Parshas Yisra, again, is when we get the Torah itself. So I would like to return back to the idea of the piano player and say, Parshas Yisra so to speak, is that young piano prodigy who knows all the keys to hit because those are the rules. But Parshas Bashalach is the relationship. That's how we apply the rules. Right? Like all of a sudden there's a, there's a sea in front of us and we're going to get wiped out by the attacking army of Paro. And all of a sudden, the sea opens up. Miracles. God loves us. Amazing. 
Now all of a sudden, after God splits the sea, the sea is made out of water. God is showing his mastery over water. By the way, I'll tell you just an amazing thing from the, um, I saw from Rabbi Wolfson, I think he said in the name of the, uh, the, uh, the uh, Chasm Sofer, that the reason why, did you, did you ever like wonder like what was going on with the Egyptians? Like basically everything, their entire civilization has been, their entire empire has been decimated. Why on earth are they following the Jews into the desert after Egypt has been leveled? And they thought because God on purpose left one Avodah one idol unbroken to test the Egyptians, to see if they had learned their lesson yet. That was Baal Tziphon, who was the god of the sea. And they thought, if the Baal Tziphon hasn't been destroyed yet, our idol, the god of the sea, is still powerful. And now the Jews are going into the sea. So that's where we can get them. In other words... (laughs) God gave the Egyptians one last opportunity to arrive at it on their own through their past experience that there is no power other than God. But they, you know, they, they, they weren't able to do that. So they, so they chased the Jews into the sea, which of course was their undoing. They were wiped out. But that's just an aside. I'm getting back to the idea that Parshish B'Shalach is all about a relationship. Miracles happen but then after God shows his mastery over water, right? God is the master of water, not Baal Three days later, there's no water in the desert. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's like right after the splitting of the sea. It's so ironic. I, I'm, I'm surprised that I don't hear more people discuss that. The fact that here is a miracle by water, and then three days later, there's no water. <laughs> but you know what? Thank God I don't know from this, but people say thirst is a very great test. If a person's really thirsty. They're not thinking so clearly. They want to know where's the water. But God was testing them. That's a test. Then we have manna falling from heaven. Right? Another miracle. Another aspect of our relationship. But you know what's uh, interesting about the manna? And in English... If um, something great happens to you, right, like a surprise, people say, I don't, it's a bit of an old-fashioned saying, but it, it is a saying. People go, mana from heaven, right? Meaning that whatever this occurrence is, it's just great. It just came out of nowhere. Mana from heaven, it's so good. So it's a, it's a very positive statement. Mana from heaven, very positive statement. Look in the Torah, the very first verse that describes the, the mana, God himself says, I'm going to give them mana to test them. Very surprising. We tend to think of mana as like the greatest, most fantastic thing. God gave it to us as a test. You know why? Because we got it one day at a time. And it's very, very difficult to get something one day at a time. Right? Because it can really breed insecurity. Like, okay, it's true today. Is it true tomorrow? It's true today. Is it true tomorrow? I I don't know. I don't know. So what's the antidote to that? What's the antidote to neurosis? Love. (laughs) 
Love is the antidote to neurosis. Because if you love, you say, you know what, whoever gave me the mana, you know what, I don't know if he's going to give me the mana tomorrow. But this much I know, I love him and he loves me. (laughs) So we'll figure something else out. I'll tell you something, just because, to me, this made just such an impression so many years ago when I heard it. One of the first things I heard when I came out to Hollywood. So, Johnny Carson, who, you know, you don't hear his name mentioned so much anymore, but for those of us who grew up while he was still on the air, he was the king of late night. There, wasn't, there weren't five different options for shows you could watch at that hour, talk shows. There was only one, and it was Johnny Carson, and everyone watched him, and everyone loved him. And I had a couple of friends who wrote for him, and they told me, now here, here he had this dynastic spot atop of American popular culture for a few decades, right? That's a, you know, in, in pop culture entertainment, that's like a, that's a very long run. Very few people can rival that in entertainment history in America, okay? He had that, Johnny Carson. They said that every single day he asked himself the question, is today the day I lose my audience? Can you imagine? Here's a guy who had the closest thing you can have to a sure thing, a lock a lock-solid relationship with his audience, lock-solid success, lock-solid income. And he wondered every day, is today the day that it all ends? Which just goes to show you that, as Rabbi Green once said, 99% of life is in your head. You, you, you have to choose, like... How do, you, how do you want to go through life? How do you want to do this? Do you want to be the boss? Do you want to be the final authority? Do you want to say all this is because of me? Or do you want to just be this like grateful, you know, like, you know, the grateful dead? So, so if you, some people were making a hat, a grateful yid, <laughs> with the same iconography of the grateful dead, but it, you know, or do you want to be like a, a, a just a grateful person? Do you want to say that today is the day it all ends, even though I've reached this year in my life, and I guess I've gotten through, and there have been many happy occasions too? You can say, okay, you know what, the truth is, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But I know whoever has gotten me this far, whoever has made the world, loves me. And I love, and I love God back. And whatever it's going to be, it's good. I know it's good because it's coming from a place of love. Love is the antidote to neurosis. And then you have another thing in Parshish Bishalach, which is tough. This is rough now. You ready? Which is we say, after we didn't find the water, we say, is God even here? And then Amalek attacks us. Right? Remember, Amalek is the gematria suffix, which means doubt. 
the doubt triggers Amalek. And Amalek is also a, a, a spiritual force, meaning doubt in our own minds, like attacking our belief. God is here. Of course he's here. I heard Rabbi Freeman say something beautiful. He says, you know, understandable, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you know, when something is, you know, by the way, why do we say on Rosh Hashanah? We say our year is being determined on Rosh Hashanah. Why do we re- re- wish each other a good sweet year? We always use the word sweet. And of course, everybody knows we use honey. We dip the apple in the honey. Honey is sweet. So it's, I mean, it sounds very good for a five-year-old, but, but what is, what's the deeper idea there? So just on one level, everything that comes from God is good. But what we want is sweet, because sweet means that the good is revealed. That's the idea of saying sweet. We want it to be like, you don't have to explain to me why it's good. I already know why it's good. You know, I got the promotion. You don't have to explain to me why that's a good thing. I, I get it. It's good. I'm getting more cash. You know, it's good. They're recognizing my work. I get it. That's sweet. That's sweet. That's what we want. We want sweet. Now there's this thing Rabbi Freeman was saying, and this is deep, called there's good and there's very good. You know what very good is? Very good we usually see as horrible. (laughs) But God is doing something at that moment we don't have vessels to hold. That's what it is. Because the only thing that's coming down is good, but sometimes very good comes down. (laughs) And then we're like, ah! But for the very good, you know how you catch the very good? Through love. Because love can make vessels. So what I'm trying to suggest is that in Parshas Bishalach, you have the whole gamut of relationship between us and God. And that's ultimately what it's all about. It's not just... I'm here to do the great mitzvah of visiting the sick. <laughs> right? That's hitting the note, right? Yeah, you're right. You could have been anywhere. You could have been like eating ice cream on a park bench, but you went out of your way and you went to a hospital to visit someone. That's fantastic. You did something great. Ah, but how did you do it? You can, there's still some progress that can be made. Now all of a sudden we're getting from rules to relationship. And again in understanding what the halacha is, that also involves humility. And that gets us to this place of chen. And that gets us to this place of really climbing these levels and participating in this amazing dance work, God, where we're being guided around the world, around the history, around this amazing timeline toward Mashiach. Shreya.